So that's where we stand on this vaccine. I think this is going to be a at least a two-week pause, perhaps longer. I think what's going to happen in the end is we're going to say, yeah, we can continue to use this in people over 50. Uh, but beyond that, probably not. Welcome to the Rain Insights Podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. Today in our ongoing series about COVID-19, Rain founder David Lawrence catches up with doctors Bill Lang and Fred Southwick about the news that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine has been halted in the U.S., a new vaccine on the horizon, and what to expect in the coming weeks. Bill and Fred, again, uh, thanks for spending some time with us this Friday. The last week obviously has been very eventful with some of the news about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And uh, let's spend some time really uh, helping to explain to our audience what has happened, the steps that have been taken by the government, and uh, what the, dat- the data is revealing. Bill, maybe I'll start with you. Sure. So as, as you know, I tend to be very optimistic about these things and tend to think that most things that happen like this are just a question of what are the odds of something happening. But when I look hard at this and look at the data and then have also reviewed the uh, what's been been coming out from CDC, um, this looks like it's real. Um, And in fact, the AstraZeneca problems are also looking like they're real. So this, these two vaccines, both of which are viral vector vaccines, they have, meaning there's a virus that carries the, the DNA that encodes for the protein, um, carries that into the body. It looks like what they do is they incite an, an immune reaction that affects the platelets. So totally unrelated to what we're trying to do with creating antibodies, this immune reaction affects the platelets. And in doing so, it raises the propensity for causing a very specific type of clot that happens to occur in the brain, um, in the main main vein that drains the brain. And this clot can be very serious. It could, if managed, recognized and managed appropriately, it can be it can be managed effectively. But because it is so uncommon. Uh, an incidence, an annual normal incidence of about of less than one case per hundred thousand per year, uh, because it's so uncommon, most docs don't recognize it. And I'll be very honest, and I probably would not. I've never seen one before, and I probably would not recognize it at first first happening. So this is a real event. But then the question that the uh, the advisory committee on immunization practices is looking to answer is: is the incidence of this that is caused by the vaccine. So I think we can we can set that aside. It is caused by the vaccine. Is the incidence of it high enough that it eclipses the benefit of the vaccine when we know that getting the disease in and of itself can cause clots? So that's the big question. And if this was the only vaccine we had, that would be a incredibly important question to answer to decide whether to go forward at all. Fred, your perspectives on the pause on the Johnson Johnson vaccine. Yes, uh, David, this is uh, appropriate. Originally, when I didn't learn of the details of the cases, I, I thought this might be premature, but I think it was the right thing to do. And in the setting Remember, the AstraZeneca and the J&J are using 
almost identical technologies. They're using an adenovirus. Uh, it's a DNA virus that's not replicating, gets into cells, then uh, from the DNA forms the RNA, which in turn then produces the spike protein. So this, it seems that the combination of the adenovirus and the generation of the spike protein is in very, very rarely, approximately one per million cases, is inducing this unusual immune reaction. And these individuals, about seven to 14 days after the vaccine, develop an antibody to a protein called platelet factor four, PF4. Now that particular protein usually inhibits uh, an agent called antithrombin, which actually usually prevents clotting antithrombin. The PF4 blocks that and therefore creates, causes clot formation to occur. Now in, uh, in a setting of an infection or an area of damage, the platelets would come in, they'd release the PF4 to clot that area so that someone doesn't bleed to death. So there, it's, so it's very helpful normally, but in, when, there's a, when there's antibody directed against PF4, what happens is the PF4 is still active, but it also, it, it activates the platelets so that they all of a sudden are stimulated. And when a platelet is stimulated, it expands out and then it comes in contact with other platelets and sticks to them and creates a large uh, cluster of platelets which uh, induce clotting. And when you stimulate platelets, more of this PF4 is released. And so it creates a tremendous stimulus for thrombosis. So that's where we stand on this vaccine. I think this is going to be a at least a two-week pause, perhaps longer. Um, I think what's going to happen in the end is we're going to say, yeah, we can continue to use this in people over 50. Uh, but beyond that, probably not because we have an alternative. Essentially, there are two drugs that are now at least being taken off the market. And uh, or the, in the, the AstraZeneca case right now, well, it's, it's never been approved in the, US, in the U.S., but it's being significantly limited to where it's going to be used in, in Europe, at least, right. and, and in other parts of the world. The other side of this, and this is where I want to probe, because you are very much a practitioner and somebody who is in the field, from a consumer standpoint, how should people look at this and how actually are people looking at this bill? So I think the way sh people should be looking at it is that this is a problem that is relatively unique to these two vaccines. And I say these two vaccines have very similar technologies. So it's, it's unique to the technology that is used in the AstraZeneca and the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. People should not be generalizing this to the mRNA vaccines, which are a totally different technology. So it's very much an apples and oranges comparison here, two totally different things. How are people looking at it? Well, I think people who were on the fence, who were uh, beginning to grudgingly think that, yeah, okay, we're seeing this is working well for people. Um, I, I think maybe I'll go ahead and get it. Well, now this is gonna knock them back off the fence again. So what needs to happen is a huge education program to tell people that this is different. And then in fact, use this as a positive. Look, we are monitoring, we're watching this carefully. We detected a problem in six out of seven million doses of it. 
and we're taking immediate action to, to shut down further use because we think it's important that this be safe. And if we can do that, then that'll be good. But it's going to be the education that this is different than anything that has to do with the mRNA vaccines. I regard this messenger, this mRNA vaccines as the safest that I, in my career, that I have witnessed. I think those are still absolutely safe. And the only risk is in those that have multiple anaphylactic reactions. And uh, I actually reviewed that uh, literature recently, and it seems to be distinctly in women and females. It doesn't, this uh, severe anaphylactic reaction has not reported in men, at least as of the JAMA article in uh, mid-January. And for Moderna, it's 2.4 per million, and for Pfizer, it's 4.1 per million developed this anaphylactic reaction, which is detected within the first 10 minutes of getting the vaccine. So you're in an area where there are medical personnel and you can be easily rescued. A, a great point, because the lack of confidence or vaccine hesitancy has been based upon a, a number of factors, but not the least of which is, is the vaccine truly being monitored? And, you know, the big question in the marketplace has been, how could this have been developed so quickly and approved so quickly? Right. And, and I know I've said this before um, on these on these podcasts, but this came up this I did a, um, a webinar for a major multinational with people from all over the world on it this morning. And actually, one of the first questions was, does this just demonstrate how trying to bring something to market in one year is dangerous? And my answer was, you know, that is a, a common misconception. These were not brought to market in one year. This is the product of, of 10 to 15 years of research specifically against coronaviruses and what are the best, what are the best vaccine approaches to coronaviruses. Um, you know, remember SARS in the, in the early 2000s. We started a very extensive vaccine development program there, but we didn't have to follow through because SARS basically died out on its own naturally. That research formed the basis for this. So this is not a one-year effort to bring a vaccine to market. This is the culmination of a over a decade-long effort to bring a vaccine for this type of, of disease to market. Very important point. And I want to go back to something you said because I think it was Mount Sinai Hospital here in New York was one of the first institutions to recognize that the COVID virus was causing clots and otherwise and often in otherwise healthy individuals who would, were not at risk because of pre-existing conditions. Maybe you could just explain um, that to, to the audience a little bit, uh, because I think that's an important point in balancing the risk-rewards that, you know, that people are assessing. Sure. The total number of patients that I've been involved with through this has been, has numbered in the, in the low hundreds, probably. Um, the number of patients that I've worked with that have had, actually, it's probably, probably a two to 300 patients I've had. The number of patients that I've worked with that have had clots has been four or five. I mean, that's actually a relatively significant uh, proportion of patients with the disease that have that have developed a significant side effect. Now, I haven't had anybody, any of my patients that have had serious sequelae from the clots. They had a, a deep venous thrombosis, the same kind of clot that people might get 
um, if they've had a long airplane flight and didn't didn't move around much. I've had at least two patients who have had pulmonary emboli, which is where a clot forms typically in a leg and then breaks free and goes to the lungs. Those are the kinds of clots that we're seeing with as a sequelae of the virus itself, not necessarily this very rare cavernous sinus venous thrombosis. That This is a very unusual kind of clot. Uh, but it's it's very important to recognize because it's in the brain and it can can wreak havoc with the the brain blood flow and that is not good at all. So it's not the exact same problem that comes up with the disease and with the vaccine. They're probably not even that closely related. But the blood clotting problem that you can get from the disease is I don't want to say often fatal, but it, it certainly can have a fatal result and has had a fatal result over the course of the disease period that we've had. Bill, um, one of the questions that, you know, comes up recurringly, uh, we've heard this and so, you know, truly appreciate getting your and Fred's views on this, uh, which is I've had the J&J vaccine. Should I be worried what should I be monitoring? What should I be sensitive to? Uh, I said I did a group session this morning, and that was the second question that I got. Some people feel like it's almost like they're a, um, uh, they've got a ticking time bomb in their head, and you should not feel that way. Again, the odds of this, what we see right now, are one in a million. Literally one in a million. I'm just not, that's not just throwing out that phrase. Now, it's a very good chance there could be a couple of more cases that come up over the course of the next two weeks since we were administering this until just four days ago. To put that in perspective, if you get in a car and you just do your routine car trips for 10 days, your odds of being killed in that car are about one in a million. But that doesn't mean that people shouldn't be, I don't want to say concerned, but you just know what you need to be watching for. And what you need to watch for is a, a, an unusual headache. And the people describe this as a, as a very deep-seated headache. Very, it's not what most people experience. So an unusual headache. Shortness of breath, which could be from clotting elsewhere in the body, but the same kind of pulmonary embolism that I discussed with the, um, with the virus itself. Clotting in the lower extremity. So a, a, Th swelling or an unusual pain that's not explained by exercise in one or the other leg. Uh, and then lastly is unremitting, unremitting abdominal pain because if you developed a clot in your abdomen. And fortunately, the initial screen at least is a very easy thing. It's a simple blood count because what this does is affect the platelets. And if your platelets are normal, then it is not very likely that you have one of these uh, very rare kinds of clots. The common advice that, you know, people who've had this shot should be back in touch with their doctors or just sensitive to these conditions. No, it was actually CDC specifically said it was part of the reason for the pause is they want healthcare providers to know, do not give anyone with these symptoms heparin, which is, that's the standard clot dissolving agent, or it's actually not a clot dissolving agent, but it keeps clots from happening. And you do not use that in this. It actually makes it worse. And that's a very, very unusual circumstance. But it, they wanted to make sure that doctors recognize that. As we look out ahead to next week, Fred, what are you looking at? What are you thinking about? Well, I think the name of the game is get vaccinated. And uh, that's why we're being very aggressive and 
the University of Florida. And we really want to, if we could get to 80%, and it's a real rush. And and the other thing is just keep wearing those masks, even though it, you're tired of it. It's not that big a deal. I wore a mask uh, from 7.30 this morning to 4.30 in the afternoon. I hardly remembered I even had it on. So it's not like some incredible thing that's, that's causing any kind of suffering. It's trivial. And yet, uh, we know it has still 80% efficacy as far as preventing you from getting infection. And if uh, you're unvaccinated and you're wearing a mask, you you uh, the dosage you would get if you were exposed to somebody is much lower. So your disease would be far milder and you're much less likely to be hospitalized. So keep the mask on. Don't go into large public gatherings yet. The nice thing is if you are vaccinated, you can gather with other vaccinees. And the exact number, their CDC is increasing that number. I think it's up to 50 uh, can now gather. But it, if as they go on, they may raise that number. So if you're vaccinated, your life can become far more normal. And they've also, the CDC has now said you can travel. Now, right now we're in a surge, so it's probably not the best. But I think when things quiet down, those that are vaccinated can can travel. David, I would like to throw in one other no, related comment on this, yeah. and that is the Novavax vaccine. The study was released last week in the United Kingdom, and it looks fabulous. I mean, similar types of results to what we're seeing from the uh, mRNA vaccine. Uh, the U.S. data has not yet been released. Um, you know, the rumors are that it's going to look similar to what the UK data looked like, but we haven't, we have not yet seen it, but it's on track for probably being um, data being released and approved sometime in May. So we're not that far off from having another alternative. Unfortunately, the Novavax vaccine is also a two dose vaccine. So that was the beauty of the J&J was it was a single dose vaccine, uh, but we're going to have uh, mitigation factors that are coming in place. So we will still likely meet the president's goal of getting every adult American who wants vaccine to have vaccine over the course or have at least their first dose over the course of May. Uh, I'd like to close with uh, Fred by getting uh, your perspective on an announcement that I think in, within the last 24 hours, um, by the uh, head of Pfizer, uh, that people should expect the need for some kind of third injection or booster. And I'm curious what what you know and what you can share with the audience. Yeah, I, I'm a little surprised by the announcement. Uh, you know, we really don't know. We haven't followed uh, the vaccination and the cell immunity immunity and immunoglobulin levels out past a year yet or past six months yet. Uh, and so far, the level, the slopes are pretty flat. In other words, they aren't going down significantly. He may, maybe he has data that I don't have, but uh, I also like to cite a paper. Uh, it was about two months ago. I think it was in Cell where they took um, a 20, approximately 20 individuals who had SARS, the original uh, SARS virus uh, that in 2003, they took their cells, their T cells, and mixed it with SARS-CoV-2. And every single one of those person's T cells reacted strongly to SARS-CoV-2. 
telling us that uh, uh, an infection in 2003, they still remembered, their cells still remembered it. So I am not sure about uh, a booster. It's possible, but I, I think the, I predict that the immunity is going to be far longer lasting than we thought. Now, the one problem is variants and escape variant. In other words, a mutation in the virus that changes the conformation of the spike protein. And that's what all the vaccines are directed against. They're, they're trying to generate antibodies. Uh, they induce antibodies to that spike protein. If the mutation of the spike protein is changes how that protein is folded, it might hide a lot of the targets of the vaccine, in which case the vaccines would not be as effective anymore. That's the one concern. Then we would need a booster, and that booster would have to have the sequence of the mutant or variant uh, virus in it to protect against that particular escape mutant. And that's another reason why we want to keep the mask going and we want to keep the social distancing in public because we don't want a mutant that escapes the vaccine spreading uh, throughout the country the way that the B177 did, the uh, UK mutant. Uh, fortunately, the UK mutant uh, is well protected by the vaccines, so there is no confirmational change, a significant confirmational change that renders the vaccines uh, less efficacious. But th that is a worry. So, uh, and my assumption would be if for some reason a third vaccine were needed, um, if this is what Pfizer is saying, it would probably apply to those who receive the Moderna uh, vaccination as well. Yes, uh, in my view, uh, the Moderna and, and the Pfizer are virtually identical. Uh, in, in how they were, how they're produced and, and their responses, their efficacy, everything about them, uh, it seems that they are virtually the, the same vaccine. So I think any conclusions from one should be applied to the other. As always, uh, Bill and Fred, thank you so much. Stay safe and well. We'll talk to you next week. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Fred Southwick is an infectious disease specialist at the University of Florida College of Medicine. Bill Lang is an expert in public health responses to biological incidents, including pandemics. Individuals and organizations turn to RAIN for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. If you like what you heard today and would like to learn more, visit RAINNetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E-Network.com. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening.